Welcome to our podcast channel, brought to you by the British Chamber of Commerce in Singapore. Subscribe to our channel as we provide you with curated content and in-depth conversations by industry experts and leaders across Singapore, ASEAN and the United Kingdom. Welcome to the latest In Conversation With. My name is David Kelly and I'm the Executive Director of the British Chamber of Commerce. Today, I'm really pleased to be welcomed by new members of the Chamber, Globalisation Partners. Expansion and hiring across Southeast Asia is the theme of today's podcast, and it's particularly good timing with the recent news of the UK-Singapore Free Trade Agreement that was signed. As companies enter a new market and look into their first hires, they are keen to secure the best people for the job. But Southeast Asia is a highly contested market, and newcomers can sometimes struggle to persuade the top talent to confide in them. Globalization Partners today will provide insights on how to get your chosen local employees on board with the company's operations in a new country, how to tap into a diverse global talent pool as a competitive advantage for business, and some best practices for expansion to another country and getting the ball rolling in a new market. I'm joined today by Charles Ferguson, the General Manager of Globalization Partners Business in Asia. Charles is responsible for establishing scale and efficiency for globalization partners and their current clients' business expansion in one of the most dynamic markets in the world. Globalization partners flattens barriers to global business by making it easy for companies to hire employees anywhere in the world within a few business days. The company delivers these capabilities through its global expansion platform, which allows companies to hire employees throughout the world without having to navigate complex international legal, tax and HR issues. Charles was most recently Group Chief Commercial Officer at Tricor Group, a leading business expansion specialist in Asia, and he has global knowledge and local expertise in business, corporate, investor, human resources and payroll and corporate trust and debt services. A very warm welcome to you, Charles. It's great to have you with us and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I guess the first question is, can you just tell us a little bit about Globalization Partners just to set the scene? It was like a fantastic organization and I think really poignant in terms of supporting the growth of companies outside of the EU to this part of the world. So can you just tell us a little bit about what Globalization Partners does? I'd be happy to, David. And again, thank you for inviting me to join this conversation and share some ideas and some insights uh, with, with the listeners. The the company is, it's, it's a really interesting idea. It's a really interesting model. And frankly, the whole concept around what we provide, which is nomenclated as an employer of record, you'll hear the acronym EOR perhaps throughout this conversation, was born kind of within uh, the Globalization Partners startup about a decade ago. There's a concept that's prevalent in many markets called PEO, Professional Employer Organizations, which act as sort of a co-employer for companies that want to enter into new markets or, or potentially uh, outsource some of the functions around HR and focus on core business operations. But as relates to, to our founding and kind of what, we, what we're all about, the, the founder, Nicole Sahin, previous to founding GP, was working in a company that went about expansion services in a more traditional way, which is the classic, hey, we found a market that we think we want to explore. We're going to, you know, back in the good old days, we would fly in there, right? <laughs> and we would meet up with some lawyers and some corporate secretaries and some accountants, et cetera, and go through the litany of processes and iterations to set up a legal structure and a legal entity. Once that was in place, then you would go through you know, the registration of the tax bureaus and set up payrolls and open up bank accounts, et cetera, et cetera. What she saw that was you know, a 
a source of frustration for the clients was the amount of time, effort, money, and just general consternation that it definitely takes in most countries to get that process off the ground. So her idea was, wouldn't it be amazing if there were a way that you could set that up on behalf of the clients and then provide that as a service to them so that they in turn could simply leverage a locally compliant vehicle in any country that they choose, find talent and onboard that talent compliantly, legally, with payroll supported and local benefits and all the various accoutrements that are needed to get someone up and running. And then use that as a, an opportunity to explore the viability of a particular market, or and particularly germane given the current circumstances that we find ourselves in, perhaps they have no interest whatsoever in that particular market, but they have found an incredibly talented individual that for various reasons, perhaps because of pandemic travel restrictions, or perhaps because the individual is, is really fond of remote work and doesn't want to relocate, we want to be able to hire that person, right? Regardless of where they are. So that's the inception of the model. And fast forward 10 years later, you know, we've had thousands and thousands of professionals employed on the platform. We've been here in this region for about seven years in a delivery capacity, but as it relates to kind of building out a business development practice, if you will, it's, it's relatively new and thus our enthusiasm to join the chamber. I've had great experiences with, with BrickCham in the past and with the members, so I was really excited to join the constituency and, and share ideas and help the teams that are trying to expand in the region. Have you seen the shift in way companies are looking to expand internationally because there's been so many travel restrictions? Have you seen have you seen that sort of that shift in terms of the way companies are approaching their international expansion? Yeah, it's a great question. We have seen, and, and not to be sound braggadocio, and I certainly don't want to, you know, bask in the misery uh, of what has taken place across the globe. But for us, because of our model, it has. Um, you know, perhaps to the outside world, it is counterintuitively, it, it has impacted us in a very positive way because what we do is an enabler for companies to take advantage of entry with virtually no committed impact. And, and what do I mean by that? I'll give you an example. Let's say a company in the Midlands in the UK has made a decision that, you know, they've seen the heretofore perhaps ominous and thus foregone opportunity, but now front and center opportunity to rebalance their dependencies in the supply chain, perhaps to some degree away from China. There's never going to be a scenario where you're going to just like drop China. That's ridiculous. It's the second, yeah. soon to be first large, you know, largest economy on the planet. But let's say Vietnam is a great just in case kind of a scenario. But if you can't fly from the UK to Vietnam, and you even have a regional operation, for example, here in Singapore, and we can't fly people from here to Vietnam, what are you going to do? And what's interesting is you, you raise this point, you know, it's it, it might sound a little cliche, but in every sort of calamitous event or in every sort of, uh, you know, tragedy, if you look through the right lens, there is an opportunity. It, it has to do with how you position yourself and how you plan and how you leverage your resources. So in this particular environment, what we have seen has been a lot of companies say, look, we know that we can't immediately go to the country and meet up with potential partners. Um, we know that in order to be successful, particularly in high context, relationship-based economies here in this region, we're mm -hmm. going to need to have someone on the ground because of the fact that, and I, I think the listeners should kind of turn around and pat themselves on their back and say, you know, we all have remarkably pivoted to be a completely virtual workforce in like six months. That yeah. is 
incredible. If you had said this to somebody a year ago, they would have, after they stopped laughing, they would have said, no, I don't think we're ready for that. But the reality is that the entire globe ostensibly shifted and everybody has gone, if not completely, like 90% virtual. What that means, which is really interesting, is that a lot of strategic design, a lot of business planning, a lot of meetings, a lot of talent acquisition has moved completely virtual. The good news is that there are tools and kind of cultural affinity out there that is, it's, it's susceptible, right? It's not as if it's a stark reality. It's kind of like, well, we were already, we were already exploring this pre-COVID. We just had to accelerate. Have there been bumps? Yes. Has it been smooth? Not necessarily, but it has happened. Companies are starting to say, well, we're not necessarily interested, nor do we have the appetite, budgetary appetite, to go and drop $100,000 in paid up capital, do a fully foreign-owned enterprise setup, register with the tax bureaus, set up payroll, open up the bank accounts and start trade. But we are interested in dropping a salesperson or a, or a chief procurement officer on the ground to meet up with partners. And we can use local um, resources to do that if we only had a way to hire them compliantly and not expose ourselves to unnecessary risk. And that's where a model like this comes into play. You know, not to make this all about what we do. I mean, there are a litany of other partners in the ecosystem that we work with that provide the types of services and solutions that would enable this type of work to continue. Example would be, well, I mean, my God, there's LinkedIn, right? I mean, I would venture to guess that most of the companies out there in the world today are at least on a cursory level, they're doing initial candidate profiling research on LinkedIn. And certainly there are recruitment firms out there that are using technology to source and long list candidates, as an example. Now, we don't do that today, but what we do is once you have found that talent, we meet up with them, we ensure that they have all of the information that they require, we put them into our system, and we basically make them, for all intents and purposes, our employee, but we have a back-to-back contract with the ultimate employer, who's the firm that we was referencing in the Midlands in the UK, who give them their email address and manage them on a day-to-day basis. So we're in the background being their arms and legs from an HR perspective on the ground. And we help them if they have escalations and help to make sure that the employee is taken care of. And because of that model, you know, and we've been doing it for a decade, we have a 97% customer satisfaction rate, which is pretty incredible considering uh, what we've been going through globally over the past, you know, let's call it a year by the time this airs. Prior to my role within the, within the chamber, I was working for a small business in the UK, and yeah. we had the sort of the parachute in the suit to go and have your business yeah. networking exactly. conversations and try try and drive some sort of you know start on that treadmill, and then you start yeah. looking at you know how to grow the business. So it sounds like a really really good platform. You know, whilst you're still in the UK, and there are lots of other sort of challenges with with, with businesses at the moment when they're looking at you know certainly the EU trade deal, for example. So I think to have that experience on this side of the world to be able to plug yes. them into talent is it's it's a it is a different way of operating isn't it it is and, and I'll, I'll tell you it's it's a couple of other ideas around that you know there's there's nothing wrong whatsoever with a small company sending a contingent force in to kind of scout out and see what's going on and frankly as it relates to some of the implications of this new globally remote workforce it's important to inculcate the local market with your your values and your, your, your cultural thumbprint, as it were, around yeah. what your firm is bringing to the market, right? I think that's really important. And that can't be done as effectively all the time, given the cultural nuances and times, et cetera, through a screen like this, right? So it behooves us to be able to get face-to-face, fair enough. 
And we also are able to provide for that inevitability that you might, a company might want to send their own emissary over and put them on the ground. We ensure that that person is therefore employed locally and is employed in such a manner that you know, there's, there's no uh, permanent establishment risk and, and all those other areas of challenge that you might encounter by sending somebody over on a tourist visa and rolling them out to Thailand for the weekend and sending them back again for another stamp on their passport. You know, we do make sure that everything is completely legal and compliant so that you can rest assured and not worry about those nitty-gritty details. The other interesting part about that, David, is that it's very much the case, given the limited resources, particularly in the SME sector, you kind of have to throw the dice on one country. You kind of get one shot. You know, we say, you know, we've done our due diligence. We've worked with, with Brit Chan. We've worked with, you know, the Vietnam Investment Agency or, you know, uh, Invest Hong Kong or whatever it is. We've decided that that's the market. Well, that's great. But with this type of a model, you could do 10 markets at one time. You could find talent in 10 different markets and hit it all at one time and pick the ones that deliver the, the highest ROI and then make those investments and double down and go in all the way. So that's an interesting scenario that, that needs to be considered as, as an opportunity. You, you don't have to be serial, you can be parallel. I'm going to ask a bit of a silly question. I mean, I mean do you think that the ability to hire locally from afar by you know embedding somebody and, and the company culture into a marketplace that they that they select, as you just mentioned, is yeah. is really the way forward. Because I think creating certainly COVID this year has has meant we've all been working from home, we've been working in slightly different ways, but actually it's yeah. got the opportunity to really pioneer a truly inclusive and diverse workforce to support Agreed. company growth. And I think you know, just getting some of that knowledge into a business. You know, certainly those that are exporting or new exporters, for example, it sounds like a really exciting journey for companies that are looking to expand into this part of the world. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And to be clear, I, I think that my examples are one foot in the new reality, the great reset, and one foot in sort of, I won't call it the antiquated model, but the, the heretofore traditional model of expansion with regard to the management of talent. I would say to you that you know, 100%, I agree that the makeup of that workforce on a global level is, you know, the, the, the genie has been let out of the bottle. Like it, you can't th- throw, throw the cheesy analogy you want. The horse is bolted. The train has left the station. Like it, this is the reality that you cannot anticipate now that it's going to go back to sort of a, a hub and spoke kind of world where the hubs are set up in different locations holistically. It very much will be the case that Back to my comment about cultural nuance and proclivities here in this region, which is the only region that I know, you know rather well, having lived here for 35 years. But I can tell you that you must have someone on the ground. I, I cannot express more passionately how much you must be local to gain access to the local markets. That's not to say that there is not an overarching global context of the business. But in order to be able to harness the supplier networks and the government relationships and the just, just the nuance and understanding of what's happening with your competitors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in a local market, you know, lots of people don't really fully grip the complexity of a place like Asia Pacific. Think about, okay, we're going to go to Vietnam. That's an awesome market. Okay. Have you considered the fact that Vietnam actually has four different sub-regions? And those four different subregions are dramatically different from one another and have different yeah. types of uh, regulations and different types of rules and, and even culture. The Philippines has five. Uh, Indonesia has 13,000 islands. Trade, you know, what's the difference between Sumatra and Java? How do you get trade going across the island? I could go on and on and on ad nauseum. Those nuances are far more readily and handily overcome 
and made into opportunities when you have the foresight to bring a diverse workforce into place, particularly those that have a great connection in the local marketplace. I would further say that through a model like this, instead of kind of betting the farm on it, hire a couple of people that doesn't work out. That's fine. We handle that for you. We can help you find the next person and get them on board because you haven't made, well, I digress, but let me just say this. If you think setting up is hard, wait until you try to unwind. Yeah. Right. So some of these markets, and I'm not throwing rocks, I'm just stating facts that once you've established, that's great. If it doesn't work out and you go, okay, well, what do we need to do now? Well, be prepared. Be prepared for like two years of, you know, a host, a legion of different types of challenges you're going to have to go through to unwind the particular uh, entity that you've set up that could have been avoided. So that's a negative point to leave that, that last thought on. And I would say to you that, you know, just attacking a market and then having a couple of side bets in a couple of other markets for business continuity purposes, if for no other reason, manufacturing with the, the shifts in supply chain we're seeing here in this region right now, which is super exciting and very dynamic. We're going from just in time manufacturing, which was the advent of supply chain to now I feel it's going to just in case you're going to see this scenario where digital resiliency working from home, remote management, and just in case supply chain diversity is going to be uh, what sets companies apart and, and differentiate your ability to pivot. Because I hate to tell the, the listeners this, and I'm sure they know it. It's a crappy time to talk about it, but this is going to happen again. And by the way, not for nothing, but the Asian financial crisis in 97, the SARS epidemic in 2003, the great financial crisis in 2008, the pandemic in 2020, do I need to go on? You know, I mean, the, the great story here for Asia is that we have been able to roll with this consistently over those decades to a point where I think there's enough foresight from government planning, enough resiliency built into uh, sort of business relationships and trade agreements, et cetera, that barring any unforeseen circumstances, which are the circumstances that we're talking about, but barring any even more dramatic uh, unforeseen circumstances, we have a, a pretty good fundamental here. When you put the demographics in place and you know the economic growth, et cetera, it's a, it's a phenomenal time to deploy these types of models and get into the water. Have you seen any, any of your clients that have built a truly resilient workforce by having that local cultural knowledge that you were talking about through quite a challenging year? Have you, have you got sort of any examples of companies that have really managed this really well because they've got that cultural diversity in their organization, that local market footprint that sort of helped them to weather the storm this year? You know, because of confidentiality, I can't necessarily name particular companies. Sure. Um, I, I can certainly tell you, I mean, we did a pretty good job. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, uh, you know, we, we had we had the, the largest year in our history this year, and that is whilst not only, you know, handling the volatility that took place in the United States, which is where our headquarters is, but simultaneously, we actually literally expanded our business into Asia Pacific and to the European Union. And when I say that, I, I alluded to it earlier, we've always done delivery, but heretofore, the company was predominantly a US-based firm that was helping again, predominantly technology-based companies who were looking to expand their market all over the world. We operate in 187 countries around the world today. Having said that, we had not placed our bets on the interoperability, the intra-regional opportunities within the EU, the UK, and here in the Asia-Pacific region until this year. Those plans were kind of put into motion pre-pandemic impact in the US, but 
instead of pulling back, the company kind of doubled down. We drank our own champagne, if you will, and we, we, we went for it. And due to that sort of ambitious, and one could argue both precinct and lucky <laughs> uh, approach, we really have put ourselves in a command position from a business point of view. Having said that, within the region itself, we've enjoyed, well, off a base of very low, unprecedented growth in Asia, but some very, um, very intelligent, very uh, well-known and well-backed firms who have made the decision to carry this type of model you know, forward into this region. You know, we have Australian companies who have been expanding into other parts of Asia. Singaporean companies have been expanding into the United States. Chinese firms who are still following the Daiilu, um, the One Belt One Road initiative. And by the way, some British firms who have made the decision to branch out into this region, utilizing this type of model. But similarly, I would call out the fact that we've had lots of conversations with companies who absolutely were interested in this model, but had already made the decision and already budgeted the impetus to set up lock, stock, and barrel. And those companies have also you know, planted their flags in, in a counterintuitive time. I can guarantee you, you know, the adage of uh, buy low, sell high comes into mind, right? So for sure, will there be headwinds in 21? Yes. Will a lot of the kind of dry powder that was built up and, and saved in 20 get blown out in the fourth quarter, first quarter, second quarter of next year and make 21 a tough year? Probably so for a lot of firms. However, we cannot be slaves to the quarterly forecast, and we certainly need to have a longer view. And I would say to you that the companies that are making these moves right now and into 2021, particularly given the landscape with things like RCEP on the trade agreement that you just mentioned earlier in the preamble uh, with the UK uh, set up here, you need to be looking 24, 36 months into the future while keeping an eye on the, on the present, right? I mean, I'm not trying to advocate, you know, insanity, but you've got to place a couple of risks. I realize that perhaps our colleagues um, in, in the UK might not be as familiar with the great American sport of the National Hockey League, but there was a player called Wayne Gretzky, who was a great player, who said, you know, I missed 100% of the shots that I never took. And he also said, I try to skate to where the puck is going, right? Yeah. And these two quotes, I think, resonate regardless of sport, you know, replace hockey for football. But the point is, you got to place a bet. And I'd say Asia Pac is a great bet, if not next year, certainly over the next 36 months. And just in terms of sort of placing that bet, coming back to that sort of cultural piece as well, is, is there a nervousness about hiring somebody you don't know in a new market rather than somebody that may have been sort of involved with your brand for two or three years, really understands the process of the HQ operation? Is there sort of a for and against argument there for companies that might be a bit nervous about employing somebody that, they, that they've never met? Yeah, look, I, I think that's just human nature, right? I mean, it raises a couple of points. So let, let me unpack that a little bit. I would say to you that Absolutely, virtual relationships, which are for the foreseeable future going to be the majority of relationships that we develop in business, are new frontiers for most people. Having said that, I strongly believe that if you as a firm are focused on becoming more self-aware, and by that I mean to say you, you take the time to truly define your mission, your vision, and your values, you really know why we do what we do, what we're doing and where and why we're going to do it and who, who is successful with us. You know, a lot of people 
are still stuck in this 20th century recruitment mentality, which is about hiring for competence. Mm. And, and the reality is, you know, we, we moved away from sort of, uh, you know, let's call it the 19th century on back of hiring for physical strength, right? <laughs> and then we started hiring for competency. And now we need to be hiring for potential. And the potential that you should be hiring for, you can argue what those sort of nuances are. But 21st century development and smart hiring is, is really, it's based on, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a cheese ball because I'm a sales guy and I used to be in tech. So I always think about things in acronyms, okay? But when I look at hiring people today, particularly in a virtual environment, I'm thinking of, there's an acronym I call DICE. And DICE means determination, insight, curiosity, and engagement. So what does that mean? It's, it's determination is clearly the ability to bounce back from adversity. So does this person have the, the character traits and, and the experience to show that they're able to communicate and be persuasive and have a vision and bounce back? Insight means the ability to kind of gather this whole crazy amount of information that's coming at them and put it together in a way that makes sense and get some yeah. sort of like a, a, a mission or a point about it. Curiosity is pretty, pretty straightforward. If they're willing to hold up their hand and say, I'm willing to take a chance on you as an employer, if you're willing to take a chance on me, that's openness to learning, openness to change. And uh, that engagement is, it's a knack for being able to express how to use logic and emotion to communicate. If you're able to put those things together, I would argue to, to anybody that if those, if those character traits match your values as a firm, it doesn't matter if they're English or Mongolian or from Cameroon. There is an 80-20 principle here. There is this challenge of, you know, we need to have 80% standardization and alignment to what we do as a business, but you need to be mm -hmm. open to that 20% that's different. And by the way, in an increasingly, I would again argue, in a more globalized economy, particularly given the remoteness of it all, because remember, global doesn't necessarily mean geographic. It can also, you know, part of the globe now is the internet. Let's call it, you know, interspatial economy that we operate in. You need to be able to kind of be open to that new perspective and the, the value that comes from having an incredibly diverse workforce across a whole litany of different stripes of diversity. But the companies that resist, well, they're going to fail because this is the reality of the world we operate in now. Really, really good point. You said it really piqued my interest around hiring for potential and not for occupational competence. It's, it's pleasing to hear it because you've got to give somebody a chance. They've got That's the right, right attitude and aptitude. I think, I think you're absolutely spot on with that. Is it easy to find those people is sort of the first part of the question. The second bit is yeah. in terms of trying to create a local workforce and building a local talent that yes. is having an impact in international business. You know, I think a lot of companies do struggle with that sort of, you know, lifting and shifting execs around the world to gain cultural experience. And, and that model does feel like it's changing a bit. I mean, it, it absolutely is. And, and you raise a really valid point. You know, it's easy to say, oh, stop hiring for competency and hire for potential. You know, yeah. how do you measure that? How do you... How do you put in place the processes and all the various machinations that would be required to be successful in that regard? One of the things I would say to you is, again, this might to some extent seem counterintuitive, but right now at this point in history and our markets all around the world is without question, it is an unprecedented opportunity within my lifetime to find some of the best talent that's ever been available ever because a lot of companies, and I'm not casting dispersions or throwing rocks here, but a lot of companies decided that the appropriate response 
to the impact on the bottom line was to fire people. So the amount of retrenchments of really amazing talent and the amount of pullbacks from markets of some really phenomenal companies that happened over the past nine months has created a talent pool that is, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. It's, un, it's unprecedented amount of incredibly talented people. The bias that we've had as, as hiring executives over the past several years has always been, you know, air towards trying to hire the passive candidate as opposed to the often called the job seeker, right? Mm-hmm. But here's the reality. I mean, the amount of people that are now out there in the marketplace looking for opportunities is, it's, it's unbelievable. And these are people who have come into the circumstance by no fault of their own. They've been, you know, let go because of performance issues. These are significant businesses that just simply weren't able to uh, withstand the pressure of what happened. And again, you know, no judgment in that regard. It's not meaning to sound uh, callous, but it's, it's Darwinian, right? I mean, these, these things happen. The best laid plans, the, the best PowerPoints, the most awesome products, the best strategies are completely and utterly useless without the best talent. If you yeah. don't have the right people in place, you, you have no chance whatsoever of being successful, as we all know. So how do leaders kind of go around and, and capture this opportunity? And, and here's the thing. You need to make a couple of key investments in training the leadership. And I mentioned this recently when I was talking to people. You know, everyone's talking about, oh, we need to give our employees the tools they require, create psychological safety, and give them the types of access to training that they require to be successful in this VUCA world that we operate in now. Yeah, I dig that. I totally agree. However, I would also say to you that right now, HR as an organization in, in any company has in the past seven months, moved from lip service that, oh, you're really important and we really care to being the, the tip of the spear around the, uh, uh, the efforts to drive the businesses out through the other side of this pandemic. It's no longer the cliche of, oh, HR deserves a seat at the table. HR built the freaking table, right? So it's, it's, it's very important that we also realize that the HR communities inside of the, uh, the companies that we operate in, they also have never experienced this before. So we need to provide them with the guidance and, and training and coaching and access to coaches and things of this nature that we're also thinking about for our line employees. And similarly, I would argue that the vast majority of senior executives who in, in many more traditional companies might not have even you know, switched on a computer are now operating in this fully digital environment. They need to be trained on how to manage remote employees, right? So when, when we have a common set of values, which I mentioned earlier, when we have a common set of kind of standard operating procedures, and we all have a common set of understanding around what is uh, expected, then we can start to go out and have these potential conversations because designing the roles and describing the roles, making the documents available and getting you know, all the agreement in place, and then going out and hiring to those is far different than catering and kowtowing subconsciously, unconsciously, to the dilemma that's affected particularly companies from the West who've expanded into this region, which is hiring bias. And, and, and that, for, for our listeners who might not be aware, is, wow, David reminds me a lot of me. He's a good guy. We should hire this guy, right? And that's not necessarily the best fit for purpose, right? We, yeah. we, want, to, we want to see ourselves in people that we want to hire. And that yep. doesn't necessarily denote potential. That just denotes sort of like 
reference point or commonality. And if we get everybody on the same team who thinks and acts exactly the same way, we're not going to be as resilient as we need to be. Right. So there, there is, um, there's a lot of reluctance or reticence around hiring people that are different, that are far away, but it can be overcome and with the right partner and the right planning. When we talk about the, the skills that are going to be most important for success as a company and as, a, as an employee, as we move forward from what's happened to the markets most recently, I think that the open-mindedness, the global mindset, the curiosity in, in markets and the nuances and changes in markets, the cultural affinity, these types of hallmarks are going to be the ones that are going to equate to success. And I, I would, you know, yeah. not to go down kind of a rabbit hole of um, HR-centric comments, but imagine the impact now. I think it was maybe, you know, two, three years ago, the narrative about the future of work, right? And we were talking about the fact that we were going to have the first time in history, like five generations working together in the workplace, yada, yada, yada. And that's all true. But the acceleration of what that actually means and the red threads that connect us all as human beings have become so overtly exposed now because we're all democratized. We're all operating in a similar environment now. The hierarchical nature of work is beginning to become flattened. And when you have this arena where we can have a meeting now where, because I need the input of a particular individual in a particular market, because we don't have an office there. So we bring that person into this virtual meeting room and they're in the same frame that you are in and I'm in, and we're all kind of on the same meeting place, experiencing the same conversation. Again, it's, it's flattening up the organization. What's interesting about that is that for, I'm a Gen Xer, but let's say for the, the baby boomers and even to some extent the, gener, the Generation X folks, this is kind of new, you know, new, new waters. For the younger workforce who's coming in right now, imagine their perspective. The entire experience that they're having right now is 100% virtual, completely digital, totally mobile, on-demand workplace. This is, this is all that they know. And by the way, it's, it's incredibly familiar because of the consumerization of technology. So they're basically living inside of a TikTok video. This is the workplace that they operate in. Do we really think that it's possible now that because we've all gotten a shot that we're all going to go back to work, we're all going to go back to the office? It, it ain't happening that way. I'm not saying that it's completely revolutionized the way we're going to work in the sense that it will never go back to the way it used to be. I think it's going to be a hybrid environment, but none of us know the answer. So let's yeah. admit that and let's learn together. And by the way, the best ideas might come from the recent college grad who has a much different perspective. And by the way, that recent college grad could be in Jakarta. Yeah. Five years ago, I bet, you know, people um, in, in the UK and the European Union weren't really familiar with the company called Alibaba and certainly did not know a company called Grab nor a company called Gojek. Yeah. And certainly never heard of SEA, right? And here we have these household names in our region, which are now becoming global impact companies that were started by really young folks here in the emerging markets, and they're becoming incredibly um, successful. So we have to embrace this incredible talent opportunity and go out there and explore what it means to operate in this virtual environment. I, again, I sound like a, 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 I'm swimming laps in my own Kool-Aid, but it's really exciting. We've talked about ASEAN, the 650 million people population um, in the region. Yeah. We've talked about the exciting times that the UK is going through at the moment with the, yes. with the 58 country trade agreements that have been signed. 
it is a really, really exciting time for the UK. Have you have you got sort of your top three tips, as it were, for UK companies that are exploring Asia Pacific more broadly when looking outside of the EU? Yeah, look, there, there's a couple of things I would share. I would say, first of all, it's critical. It's mission critical. It's it's to your absolute detriment to not take advantage of the ubiquity of free resources that are out there in the world to gain insights into the region that you're trying to penetrate. Again, I don't, I don't want to sound like a sycophant, but there's this organization called the British Chamber of Commerce that you might have heard of that you would certainly want to liaise with to tap into the ecosystem of partners and government relationships and data and all this other resources on hand and pull that together and very objectively look at it. Similarly, I would suggest to you that you know there are other chambers that are represented in your particular domestic market that are representatives of the markets that you're interested in. You know, here in, in this country, we have the Economic Development Board, which has, I mean, I've been to the uh, EDB um, offices in, in London on more than one occasion. It's not hard to find. They're happy to, to share their vision for why Singapore is a brilliant market to, to uh, explore. And I could go on, Invest Hong Kong and Jetro from Japan and all these different trade uh, associations and chambers are there. I would suggest to you that, again, I, I don't work for LinkedIn, but I'm a big fan. I would suggest to you that reaching out to current customers or partners that you have in your domestic market, by and large, many of them, half of them, let's say, uh, are going to have some form of uh, exposure to a particular market that you're interested in and it can give you some insights. Um, reaching out to your network and just you know polling it. Additionally, I would suggest to you that reaching out to universities uh, particularly universities that have programs with uh, sister and brother educational facilities in other countries. And by the way, you know, really interesting um, ideas would be to reach out to incubators and accelerators through the venture capital private equity communities and understand really what innovations are going on in these local markets. And you asked a question, you know, where should they be looking? I, I would suggest to you that you want to do a little bit of research very pointedly around where are kind of centers of gravity around trade and exchange, um, finance and education happening, because you want to look at where talent is, right? Up against or measured against, of course, where you see uh, a particular product market fit for where you know your, your particular business is going to have presumably a, a positive impact. But moreover, I would suggest reaching out to potential partners and having conversations we're happy to point you to, as an example, on our website, we have something called Globalpedia, which is a free resource. You can go there. You can pick any country out of the 187 that we serve and download and peruse an entire encyclopedia of what it takes to set up in that particular country, what it's like to operate there, economic statistics, et cetera, et cetera. That's free for anybody. It's on globalization-partners.com. Just go there and check it out. So, so I, again, I would suggest you should do your research. You should reach out to partners. You should take advantage of the resources that are out there that are free for you to use. And then, you know, if you're being serious about it, engage someone and um, invest a little bit of cash to see if it's the right place to go. Despite my Caucasian visage and my outrageous American accent, I am a Singaporean citizen. So I am biased. And I will advocate that Singapore, as it relates to APAC, is probably the singularly most important market that any company can come into to set up. It's a small market, 
So it might not be the place that you achieve your unicorn status and become a billion dollar firm, unless maybe you're in finance or, or other aspects. But the reality is that this is by any measure, the most stable, most well-designed, most favorably placed on a, on a myriad of different uh, spectrums marketplace that you can possibly consider, certainly in this particular region, if not one of the top you know, three in the world, to explore and base. From here, you have access to a whole host of opportunities. And the, the one last thing that I would suggest to you that you should really investigate is, as we all know, the pandemic has caused a lot of changes in regulation, changes in, in statutory requirements, and a lot of stimulus in a lot of different governments around the world, a lot of different countries around the world. You could look at that and say, oh my God, that's a barrier. Or you can look at it and say, my God, that's a huge opportunity because without any question, every major economy on the planet is wanting to attract foreign direct investment. I mean, that's just a fact. Taxes pay back the checks they've been writing for their citizens, right? So they need FDI. They need business to come in. They need innovation. They need the brain trust to be increased, the new blood in the system. So they want you to come here and to Vietnam and to the Philippines and to Japan and everywhere else for that matter. Um, and conversely to the UK, right? Uh, ergo, the 58 uh, different trade groups have been signed most recently. So yeah. my point being, do a little bit of research about, hey, once I've set up in this place, what kinds of programs are set in motion to help me as a small growing business in this new market to bolster my effort? You know, there can be like grants and tax reliefs and HQ status that can give you all kinds of access to resources and consultancy for free and a whole host of different things. Prioritize those markets so that you can ease even further into the exploration of those particular markets. And by the way, to bring it back to what we do, just because you've decided to work with a partner like Globalization Partners and use our compliant local vehicle to hire the talent, doesn't mean that you can't simultaneously go through the process of setting up your business. The fact is, if you said China as an example, it can take 12 to 18 months to get completely set up in China, yeah. bank accounts and all that stuff. What are you going to do that and just kick back and wait for it to happen? Or do you want to hire somebody to kick the tires at the same time? So be smart, think out of the box and work with partners and we'll help you find the best market. Charles, thank you so much for your time today. It's been absolutely wonderful to hear about Globalization Partners and the technology that sits behind your organization to support the expansion of companies. We are in a really, really exciting part of the world. And I think, you know, some really positive messages some positive sharing and some great tips at the end as well for companies that are looking at this part of the world as well to, to expand and to export to. So thank you so much for joining us today. And I very much look forward to the partnership journey with you joining the Chamber recently as well and, and supporting companies that are looking at this part of the world. Thank you. David, thank you so much. And we're, we're just thrilled to be a part of BritCham and we can't wait to help our members explore the opportunities in the market. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can share our podcasts and tag us in with the hashtag BritJamSG on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. For more information on the British Chamber of Commerce in Singapore, please visit www.britcham.org.sg or should you wish to get involved with our podcasts, please feel free to contact us at info at